Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Zach Evans Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, This is being posted in late November, and so I hope you had a great Thanksgiving, excited about Christmas coming up. And so, you know, sometimes you try to post podcasts that are in keeping with the times and the calendar and different uh, festivities that might be going on. But in this case, this is going to be a very out-of-place episode because in a time when we're all kind of packing on a few extra pounds and uh, going back for a second heaping helping of sweet potato casserole, uh, we're going to talk about health and fitness. So there's that. But this is something I think is very overlooked, honestly, in Christian circles. I think that specifically within maybe more conservative veins of Christianity, we have a tendency to not talk a lot about the Christian's responsibility to his body. And there's kind of the mindset, kind of a just a nonchalant mindset that says, listen, just do God's will, he'll take care of you. And in in general, I guess I would believe that to some extent, but I also believe that I can treat my body so poorly, I can be so unnecessarily unhealthy that I actually do reduce my potential. I, I believe that must be true, that that has to be true. I don't believe that it's God's responsibility to bail me out of all of my bad decisions relative to my health. So I believe that we have a responsibility as Christians to be good stewards of our body. That is clearly true. Now, there are some who go too far with that, and there's some who don't go far enough. But what should be the Christian's perspective of things like health and fitness? Um, Are we going to be the person who's like, you know, counting our mitochondria one by one? (laughs) I don't think so. Um, You can definitely obsess over these things, and we live in a generation that tends to do that. And I don't think that we should be compulsive or OCD about our health or even our fitness. But there's a, a proper Christian understanding of health and fitness I think a lot of us miss. And so I want to dive into that today, specifically by examining Paul's mindset about his body and the famous statement where he says, keep under my body. I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. What does that mean? What's the context? What is he talking about? I think as we unpack this, it'll be very interesting as we try to give you not an exhaustive view of this topic, but I think one that would be very helpful. And so with that, we'll jump in. Thank you again for listening. We appreciate it so much. And looking forward to finishing out the year coming up on our one-year anniversary in the middle of January. I think we started on January 17th or so in 2023. So thank you for a great year. Excited about next year. So we'll jump into this episode entitled Keep Under Your Body, A Christian Perspective on Health and Fitness. And I pray that it's a blessing. 1 Corinthians 9.24 Paul says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. Notice this next phrase. This is going to be something that we minor on. He says, So run, so run, that ye may obtain. And every man that that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run. I run like them. Like who? Like the athlete, he says. Not as uncertainly, not worrying whether or not I'm going to place and am I going to come in first. 
So fight I, I fight like them, I run like them, I compete like them, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. I love Paul. I identify, I think, I think a lot of us seem to identify with Paul because maybe he just lays bare his struggles and whether they be physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, Romans chapter 7 is a great example. The good that I would, I do not. The evil that I would not, that I do. And then he's brilliant and the way that he explains things resonates with us. But one thing that I love about Paul is his determination and specifically his overt willingness to sacrifice whatever needed to be sacrificed to accomplish his goal. So whatever the gospel and the propagation of the gospel demanded that he sacrifice, he would sacrifice. Nothing was held back, nothing was reserved, nothing was off limits. He was willing to go to the very depths of his ability to master himself in order to be the most effective minister of the gospel that he could be. If I have a life verse, and I'm not sure that I do, but it would have to be where Paul says, the grace of God was not bestowed upon me in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. He says, God gave me grace. He enabled me, but then I outworked everyone. I worked harder than everybody else. No one can say they worked harder than me. Then he brings it back to the grace of God and says, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So he gives God kind of the bookends of glory there and says, God gave me grace, gave me grace, to do and then grace to accomplish. But in the middle of that was this determination, this unbelievable work ethic, this amazing amount of self-discipline. And then what was the goal of the self-discipline? It wasn't riches or fame or accomplishment or awards. It was the propagation of the gospel and the glorification of God. So the most selfless of all possible goals, the goal that requires that you and I deny ourselves and crucify ourselves, it was for that goal that Paul was willing to sacrifice anything and everything. And there's something in me that admires that. There's something in me that, I don't know, places that as the ideal, as the thing that I should be striving to become. So Paul was willing to sacrifice at the highest level if it meant reaching more people. And this philosophy is embedded in our text where Paul uses the analogy of an athlete, which he most certainly was not. <laughs> he was not an athlete. He didn't have athletic genes. And when people saw him, his bodily presence, they said, was contemptible. He looked rough. He just didn't look good. And he tells us here, I think, kind of why that is is he's saying, I have subjected my body to much hardship and discipline. So I have used my body. My body has not used me. I have lorded over my body. My body has not lorded over me. Paul understood, I believe, that his body was an asset and a liability. And so it had to be brought into subjection in order to best serve as a conduit of the Holy Spirit's influence in the world. And I want to kind of explain this mindset here, and I hope this will be helpful to you as we speak on the subject. Keep under your body, or we might say Christianity and health. Um, I love sports too much, like way too much. And I think one of the reasons why 
maybe we like sports so much. I mean, I talked about this, I think, a few months ago about it's kind of weird that we sit in stands, there's 50,000 of us, and some guy gets up there, you know, Acuna hits a 98-mile-an-hour fastball, 430 feet, and a bunch of overweight guys stand up, throw out their hands and go, yeah! When we, <laughs> when we zoom out for a second, we go, what, is, what exactly is happening here? What are we doing? Remember, we went to see uh, Brian Regan, the comedian, in Athens. He came to the, the Classic Center, and he's awesome, and he's a, a clean comic and really funny, one of my favorites. And Sarah and I went to hear him, and he knows where he's at. Right, he's like, I hear there's like a football team around here somewhere. Like, it's literally two miles down the street is uh, Sanford Stadium. But he started talking about the Braves. He's like, went to a Braves game, you know? He's like, I'm sitting there just having a good time. And all of a sudden, all these fat white dudes just start going, oh, 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 oh. And he's like, I stood up and goes, guys, should we be doing this? <laughs> like, and it was pretty funny. But it's true, like, why do we do that? It's so strange. And I'm doing it, standing up like I'm doing the double tomahawk. You know what I mean? Like, should we be doing this? It is very immature in a sense. However, I'm not criticizing it. That's low-hanging fruit to say, that's stupid. People shouldn't do that. You haven't thought it through. You haven't thought it through. Essentially, what's happening is that there's something in us that appreciates this athlete's ability to narrow his life to the point that he becomes so good at this very minute skill to where there's a round bat and a round ball and the coach tells him square it up and the guy's throwing 98 miles an hour. He has 0.4 seconds to respond and somehow he can manipulate his body to hit that ball 430, 450 feet. There is something in us that naturally goes, whoa, whoa. And what we're doing in that moment is we are celebrating the discipline. We're celebrating the specification. We're, we are celebrating this person's ability to narrow themselves, to discipline themselves, to limit themselves, to become extremely proficient at this one thing. And there's something to that. And it, it actually is more so akin, in a sense, to a religious thing, in a sense. And I don't mean that in a critical way. But you have these people who are competing for a singular prize and they have a team. They have to work together. They have to sacrifice themselves for the good of the whole. They're pursuing this object. And the rest of us are like the cloud of witnesses cheering them on, hoping that they accomplish the thing. There is something about it that makes sense when we compare it to our ability to function as a church, for example, or to worship or to pursue a goal collectively, to sacrifice Again, people dress up and all this kind of stuff and cheer. There's a lot going on in there that speaks to our, our ability as conscious beings to appreciate something far bigger than ourselves. And so I'm not necessarily criticizing the idea, but one of the things that I think we have to think about is that there, there's a level of dedication at the pinnacle of sports that most people cannot possibly comprehend. And that's what we're cheering. And you know that because then if the guy strikes out four times in a game, although you would do the same exact thing, your 300-pound self stands up and boos the man. Boo! Boo! Like you would never do that to his face. You would never do that to somebody in your office. 0 for 4 on sales calls. Boo, Tim! Boo! You would never do that. Tim's going to punch you in the face. But you know that you are so far removed from their level that it's almost like they're not an actual person. They're a caricature of an ability, and so then you can go, 
boo, and they don't really get upset at you, and you're not really upset at them personally. You're upset at their lack of ability to come through in the moment that matters to you. I, I, fans drive me insane when they say things like, I just don't think the players care enough. I just think that they don't care. I just didn't see any, you know, oomph. And it, like, the, what are you taught? You honestly think your ketchup covered self wants to win more than them? Like, seriously, this is it's the dumbest thing I've ever heard anybody say. And we've all said it. We've all said it. Where's the unction, guys? Come on, get with it. What are you talking about? <laughs> I'm looking at guilty faces. What are you talking about? There's no way that you, who's going to go to work tomorrow morning and work eight hours at a job that you hate, wants to win a championship more than the guy who's dedicated his entire life to it. Like, there's a 0% chance that that's true. But we think that that's true. And one of the things that we're doing when we act like that is we're dismissing the narrowness, the level of discipline, the amount of self-subjection that it took for them to get to that point. We're discounting it. And we're, we're saying things like, oh, well, you know, the reason he didn't go four for four with four grand slams, grand slams is because he didn't care enough. No, it's because baseball's hard. That's why, like it's really, 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 really hard. That's why. Okay, so then within that, you have the people who actually somehow discipline themselves more than others and become better than other people. And you look at the amount of discipline that these guys are willing, here's the point, the amount of discipline that these guys are willing to inflict on themselves in order to accomplish what exactly? LeBron James spends probably now more closer to $2 million a year on nutrition. $2 million a year the man spends on nutrition. Why? He wants to play as long as he possibly can. I saw him uh, highlight two nights ago or something like that. Uh, I think it was Reeves out on the breakaway on the, on the fast break, perfect angle, threw it up behind his head to alley-oop. LeBron jumps up, and the guy's like getting close to 40 years old. He jumps up, slams that thing. I mean, it looks like he's 25 years old. That's what $2 million a year on nutrition can do for you. $2 million a year. Think about Tom Brady. Wanted to play football until he was 45 years old. 45 years old, getting tackled by the likes of people like Aaron Donald. Have you seen that man? He's not from this planet. And when he tackles Tom Brady, Tom Brady feels every bit of that. He spent millions of dollars fine-tuning his diet, knowing every single type of macronutrient, calorie, everything that's in everything that he ate, nothing went into his body. He didn't know what it was. Why? Why that level of discipline? Listen to me, why that level of discipline? So he can play football. So he might could win seven championships. So he could, by the way, he's so dedicated to his craft that he essentially sacrificed his marriage for football. The man got divorced because he told his wife he would retire and then unretired, and she says, then I'm out. Because obviously I'm not as important to you as football is. I'm not condoning it. I'm saying this is a man who will sacrifice anything to be the greatest football player he possibly can be. We're talking about football. Magic Johnson, and this is in the 70s and the 80s, great Laker point guard, refused to drink alcohol because of how it would affect his athletic performance. No, I don't drink unheard of at the time. What? Seriously? No, no, I'm concerned about the way it'll affect my ability to perform on the basketball court. So the athlete understands, listen to me, that his body is the vessel of his success. 
He understands that. And so he invests and disciplines himself accordingly. His health, his fitness, his recovery, his sleep must be of sufficient priority or else his performance will suffer. Okay, so we all understand this because we live in a world that's consumed with athletics, right? Okay, Paul's generation understood this as well. In Paul's day, the Greco-Roman emphasis on athletics was prevalent. And this, of course, was epitomized in the Olympic Games, which were ongoing in Paul's day. And they were held in Olympia, Greece, every four years. It's very likely, I think it's probably just, we could state it as fact, that Paul's reference here to a race where only one receives the prize, in verse 24, is a nod to the Olympics, which the Corinthians, located on the same Greek island as Olympia, would have been very familiar. This was a huge, huge thing. When he mentions that the winner receives a corruptible crown, he's probably referring to the olive wreath that the winner of the games would receive, and it would wither in about two weeks. So think about that. They would discipline themselves. They would, they would beat against the air, subject their body to much hardship. They would not eat this and not eat that and just absolutely ravage their bodies in a sense, in order to win what, Paul says? Uh, some olive leaves. So they do all of that so they can stand on a pedestal and somebody places an olive laurel on their head. That's what this is all about? And then he says, but you won't discipline yourself for the sake of the gospel. There's the sermon. So they do all of that for olive leaves that will wither in two weeks. He says, then why wouldn't I do just as much as them? He says, I run like them. So run that ye may obtain. Run like them. Run like who? Run like the Olympic athlete. Discipline yourself like him. Structure yourself like them. Sacrifice like them. Why? Because we aren't running so uncertainly, I may or may not win. We aren't running for a corruptible crown, he says, something that will wither in two weeks, but an incorruptible. So the Corinthians would have understood the implications here, but again, you didn't have to participate in the Olympics or attend the Olympics to understand what Paul was talking about. As a Greek city that was rebuilt by the Romans by the time that Paul got there, Corinth had what was called a gymnasium. It was likely on the north plateau of the city. Gymnasiums were originally built by the Greeks, spanning all the way back to the 6th century BC. And the original idea of the gymnasium was to create a place to prepare young Greek men for war. But over time, it expanded to include any free man who wanted to discipline his body. And eventually, they became even centers of learning, where you would hear lectures on certain subjects and things like that. The word gymnasium comes from the Greek gymnos, which means nude, to signify the lack of clothing worn by the male participants. And activities included, according to historian Mark Cartwright, wrestling, running, boxing, jumping, discus, and gymnastics. Now, the Romans took this idea of the gymnasium and they expanded it and proliferated it all over the Roman world, even rebuilding a lot of the old Greek gymnasiums. So, suffice it to say that Paul's athletic analogy here in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians 
would have resounded with a Corinthian church that had a high appreciation for athletic achievement and discipline. And I would say that the parallels with our generation are perfect, are uncanny. We are a culture with a very high emphasis and appreciation on athletics. And I just don't mean sports necessarily, but also you think about gym culture, which is absolutely running a million miles an hour. I heard somebody talk on YouTube not too long ago. There was a philosopher talking about that. Essentially what has happened, no, it was a philosopher talking to this other person. I'm not sure they're the expert of some kind. And they said essentially what has happened is gyms have replaced nightclubs. So you don't go to the nightclub to meet people. You go to the gym to meet people. Like that's where we're at. That's where gym culture is. It's pretty remarkable. But Paul is essentially what he's doing is he's pointing to the athletic discipline of his day And he's saying to the church at Corinth, he's like, do you see that? Do you see the discipline and the restraint they're willing to endure for a crown that wilts on the mantle? So he says, well, we should be just as disciplined as and restrained for the gospel's sake. I love what he says. I've said it a couple of times where he says, so run that ye may obtain. The way to think about that is literally he's saying you should participate in your goals and be just as dedicated to your goals and what you're supposed to be doing as they are to theirs. Run like them. How do they run? Discipline. Bringing their appetites under control. Subjecting their bodies to intense exercise whereby it's made stronger. So run like them. The reason that many churches, Christians, families, whatever, aren't as successful as their secular counterparts isn't because somehow the devil is blessing the secular. <laughs> it, that, that's not what it is. It's that you don't run like them. You don't run like them. You're not as disciplined as them. You don't work as hard as them. And that is so shameful to us when we consider what their goal is. What's the goal? Money. What's the goal? Fame. What's the goal? Olive leaves. That's the goal. And yet look at how much they are willing to sacrifice for that. And look at how little we are willing to sacrifice for that which we say that we believe is actually incorruptible. I'm just saying. So run. So run like them. Many well-meaning Christians criticize the low-hanging fruit of the excessive dedication of the world to athletics as if criticizing that removes any responsibility for me to take on a similar type of commitment. And they criticize the commitment of the athlete to his body, but in reality, their dedication to a body that will wither and die and trophies that will rust is a condemnation of you and me. That's what it is. Because we are unwilling to discipline ourselves in like manner for the gospel's sake. And it's much easier to criticize them than it is to get my act together. It's much easier to say, I don't understand why people care so much about sports, than it is to say, you know what, I should care just as much about the gospel as they do about sports. So run. So run. Not so walk. (laughs) So run. Run like them. Paul ran like them. He said, I keep under my body and I bring it into subjection. I love what that Greek phrase means for keep under. It means to hit under the eye, to punch under the eye, to buffet or disable. That is figuratively to tease or annoy into compliance. 
Think about that. Paul says, I tease my body. I annoy my body. I don't give it what it wants. My body's always annoyed at me because I don't please it. I don't live to please my body. I'm willing to go to bed hungry. I'm willing to wake up early. I'm willing to be uncomfortable. I'm willing to be cold. I'm willing to be hot. I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I'm willing to subject my body to whatever it needs to be subjected to to accomplish my goal. And many of us are not willing to do the same. It means to subdue one's passions or to keep under or to weary. Thayer says that it means to beat black and blue, to smite so as to cause bruises and livid spots like a boxer, one who buffets his body, handles it roughly, or disciplines it by hardships. We are so worried about pleasing our body and feeling good. That's the captivating thought, feeling good. Here's something better than feeling good, is discipline, discipline my body to do good. Discipline my body to do good and let my body catch up. I can't let the way that I feel determine everything that I do because my body is a petulant two-year-old. I have to discipline my body, strengthen my body, subject my body willingly to hardships to make it stronger so that I can handle more. Like, isn't that literally how we get stronger? You subject your body to a little bit more than it can actually do. But we're not willing to do that for the sake of the gospel. Paul subdued his body almost like a wrestler subdues his opponent. He disabled the impulsiveness of his body by almost annoying it into compliance. Think about when Jacob wrestles with God. I mean, we are to wrestle and wrangle with our body and make it submit. So what happens in wrestling? You tap out. I'm supposed to keep under my body, to keep it under, uh, under subjection, to wrestle it to the ground and make it comply. That's what I'm supposed to do. And Paul, like I said earlier, was not somebody who would have impressed with his physical appearance, but he was able, because of this level of discipline, to endure much hardship for the cause of Christ. His goal was not to look like, you know, Thor. That's, that wasn't his goal. His goal was to be strong enough to endure whatever he had to endure for the gospel's sake. So this is a man who said, I mean, I will run like them. I will willingly subject myself to arnit hardship for the gospel's sake. Second Corinthians, he goes into a bunch of detail about what he's put his body through. Think about this. He says, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool, meaning bear with me. I'm going to brag a little bit. You know, I, I'm, I'm not actually being prideful. He's like, but I'm being facetious. He says, I am more, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft. Of the Jews, five times received I 40 stripes save one. How strong do you have to be to tolerate that? Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in the wilderness, in the sea, among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings, staying up all night, often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. So why would he do anything to jeopardize his body's ability to handle that? He shouldn't. He should run like them. He should run like them. The demand on Paul's body was as great as any athlete. 
and he had to subdue his body physically and spiritually that it might be effective in ministry. All right? Now, if that wasn't clear enough, he says this. He says, I keep under my body. I wrestle it to the ground and make it comply. And then he says, and I bring it into subjection. I bring it into subjection. That phrase is one word in the Greek. It appears just this one time in the New Testament. It's the only time it's used. And it means to make or treat as a slave. To make or treat as a slave. It means to treat it with severity, to subject to stern and rigid discipline. Albert Barnes, the commentator, believes that this word was applied to the act of subduing an enemy and leading him captive from the field of battle. Think about that. He's saying there are two options. I could be a slave to my body or I could enslave my body to a higher purpose. It's exactly what the athlete does. The athlete enslaves his body to a higher purpose. He is willing to Think about this. It's amazing to me that athletes understand the concept of rest. Christians don't. Christians don't understand the concept of rest. You can do all that you want strength-wise. You work yourself to death. If you don't, but Gabe, you know, if you don't recover properly, you won't see any increase in performance. You have to rest. The Bible's been talking about rest for a really long time. Work six days, rest one. Hebrews says, cease from your labor, enter into my rest as an act of faith. There are athletes who are willing to sit back. Matt Ryan, right before his MVP season, you know one of the things that turned him from being pretty good quarterback, very good quarterback, to MVP level quarterback? Being willing to go from sleeping seven, eight hours a day to nine or ten hours a day. Nothing else changed. I just realized I needed to recover more. That's faith. It takes faith to rest. It takes faith to trust that something is happening and you just got to sit and let it happen. We don't do that. We're active, 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 active. We don't even know how to rest. The athlete understands the faith of rest better than we do. We don't have enough faith to rest. They do. So if we want something to aim at, maybe we should aim at the way that they run. So Paul understood that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He knew that in his flesh, Romans 7, dwelleth no good thing, that the carnal man is enmity against God. It's the enemy of God. Enemies have to be subdued. My body is an asset, but it's also a liability. It is my friend, in a sense. It's the only body I got, but it's also the enemy of spiritual things. It is the flesh. So it has to be restrained. And he and you and I can do the same thing. We can craft the best designs. We can plan the greatest schemes. You can have the best intentions for the new year, as we often do. But if my body rules over me, it will get what it wants. I can plan the greatest schemes, but if my body rebels, it must be restrained. So Paul had two choices. Be a slave to his body or make his body his slave. That's a tough way to say it, but that's what Paul is saying in this passage. All right, so... If prospective Olympians were willing to essentially enslave their bodies and deprive themselves of pleasure and subject themselves to hardship for the sake of an olive wreath, then why can't we, Paul says, for an incorruptible crown? So with that in mind, I want to give you three thoughts this morning as we think about Paul's philosophy here of his body, we might say. The first one is this. The Christian is to be a good steward of their physical body. Christian is to be a good steward of their physical 
body. 1 Corinthians 3 says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. So think about this. Your physical body, not some spiritual part of you, your physical body is the housing of the Spirit of God. Like your physical self. He doesn't have this extra special room inside of you that's somehow made of spirit. And he, no, no, it's your body, okay? And your body comprises all of that, spirit, soul, and body. You do have a spiritual aspect. I'm not saying that at all. But all of that is within your physical self. If you need proof, just go to a funeral home, right? There's a physical body that's not working anymore, okay? So the Holy Spirit is not indwelling that person. The Spirit goes back to God. The Holy Spirit resides in heaven. He's omnipresent. The body is still laying there. Okay, so we think about it being compared to the temple or the tabernacle, and we realize that they were built to exact specifications. What's representative of the body? Everything from the altar, the laver, the candlestick, etc., was all set exactly as it should be so that the presence of God could indwell the structure. Now, thankfully... I don't have to have myself perfectly arranged for the Holy Spirit to indwell me. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is not contingent on my health, <laughs> thank God. But when I consider that the Spirit of God indwells this body and seeks to sanctify it for His use, here's what that does. It places a grave responsibility on me to be a good steward of this body. Like Spurgeon said, I only have one, and it's the only one I can minister to God with. Therefore, I have to exercise it and make it more proficient at doing all of the things that the gospel requires. Because this is the only tool that I have. How do I preach outside of my body and with my voice? How do I minister outside of my body? I can't, so I have to be a good steward of it. So here's the implication of that, and this is what we got to understand. My neglect of my body directly affects my usefulness in the kingdom of God. My neglect of my body directly affects my usefulness in the kingdom of God. Here's what we think. We think that the Holy Spirit will make up for our lack. So the Holy Spirit will make up for your weaknesses, but not the ones you voluntarily tolerate and allow in your life against His will. The Holy Spirit doesn't adjust necessarily and go, okay, you're obviously being overtly undisciplined in this area, but don't worry, I got it, I'll pick up your slack. What are we saying about him then? He becomes an enabler of our vices. So Paul had a thorn in the flesh, but he didn't say, man, I'm so glad I have this thorn in the flesh. No, he tried everything he could to get rid of that thorn. And God said, no. There's things like that in our lives. There's things that we'll always have, physical or otherwise, that keep us back, and God allows those in our life to make us weak so we can find sufficiency in His grace. Absolutely true. But there's many thorns in me that I allow to be in me that I could pull out probably with a little bit of self-discipline that I don't, and that inability to discipline myself in those areas limits my usefulness by definition. If I have less energy than I need because I eat unhealthily or I do not exercise, that will affect my ability to minister to this church as a pastor. And then I'm doing a disservice to you. I'm doing a disservice to you. I'm doing a disservice to my wife. I'm doing a disservice to my children. 
if one of the reasons why I'm not the dad that I should be is because I'm voluntarily undisciplined, then that's on me. And so then why wouldn't I be willing to run like them to be better for her and them and you and God? I should be. I should be. It's sad that we're only motivated by things like money. Like that's what motivates us. Boss said, hey, lose 20 pounds, get a 10% raise. It wouldn't be hard. It would not be hard at all. Okay, what if I lose 20 pounds and I'm 10% more disciplined relative to my temper in my home? What if I'm 10% happier and that disposition reflects in my marriage? What if because I'm actually exerting myself physically, my brain works better so that when I approach God's word, I'm not an absolute mental slob and actually glean from God's word some things that I could. I'm not expecting the Holy Spirit to somehow come in and transcend my laziness. Like that's what we think he does. We read the Bible and go, I didn't get nothing out of it. You were up till four. You were up till four, you woke up, you didn't eat breakfast, you ate two donuts and drank a large coffee. Of course you didn't get anything out of it. You expect the Holy Spirit to just fill the kitchen as you're stuffing your face with the Krispy Kreme? Holy Spirit goes, this is the environment I can work in right here. Like, no, what are you doing? What are we doing? We blame Him. God didn't speak to me. What do you mean God, what do you mean God didn't speak to you? He had to fight His way through the carbs. What are you talking about? If I unnecessarily think about this, shave a decade off of my life through personal irresponsibility, there will be an actual loss of potential. There will be things that could have been that are not because of me. So I love this guy. You should look him up. You should listen to his stuff. His name's Peter Atia. I just finished his book called Outlive, and he's a talks about longevity, and he talks about something called the marginal decade, which is like the last 10 years of your life. And he essentially says, look, he says, moving forward, because of medication advances in science, everybody's going to live to be 80, 90 years old. The question is, how, how do you want those last 10 years to be like? What do you want those last 10 years to be like? And he goes through the list. He says, okay, tell me what you want to be able to do. Well, I want to be able, you want to be able to walk under your own power? Yeah. You want to be able to walk up hills? Yeah. You mean when I'm 90? Yeah, when you're 90. You want to be able to walk up hills. What about stairs? Yeah, I want to be able to walk up stairs. You want to be able to pick up your grandkids? Sure. Okay, how big? Just when they're toddlers, when they're five, when they're seven, when they're eight? You want to be able to get up off the floor under your own power? You want to be able to do that? You want to be able to drive? Okay, so the, the point that he makes is, he's like, look, um, you're going to live pretty much this long, and you can either have a very sudden collapse in health, and then you kind of die, or you could have like a decade of your life that's riddled with health problems, and you're essentially unable to function as you should and enjoy life those last 10 years. Okay, here's the way I think about that. What if I could... What if I could longevity-wise? What if I didn't have to stop preaching when I'm 70? What if I could still be preaching at 80, 85 years old? What if I could still hop on a plane and travel halfway around the world at 80-something years old and preach? How much more effective could I be in those last 10 years? Okay, well, guess when those results are going to start compounding? That's like now. It's like literally now in my 30s. I have to start now. I can't push that off until later. I can't wait until I'm 70 and then try to medicate my way into health. Like, it's just not going to happen. 
okay, so I have to be thinking about that. Am I going to shave a decade off of my effectiveness? And why would I do that? Like if I knew that was the deal up front, why would I do that? I would never sign up for that. I would never sign up for that voluntarily. I would sign up for the opposite. I'd say, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you tell me I do these seven things every day. I'll have 10 really healthy years at the end of my life. You know, I'll be 90 and be somewhat healthy. Man, that sounds amazing. That's what I'd sign up for. We understand this about overtly stupid things like smoking and drinking alcohol. Like, Christians get that. I don't understand why people smoke. I don't understand why people drink. I don't understand why I like the family bucket so much, but I do, and I shouldn't. So, for some reason, conservative Christians don't see gluttony or something like that as a similar liability. Like, I don't, I don't understand that. My effectiveness in God's will is directly impacted by my responsibility or lack thereof in the area of my body. To be sure, it's not the only factor. We have many examples like Paul, people plagued with chronic illness or disability who God used in a miraculous way. But like I said, Paul did not cling to the thorn in his flesh, but begged God to remove it. I only have one body with which to preach and minister. Therefore, I must be a good steward of it. Number two, and quickly, the body is a means not an end in and of itself. The body's a means to an end, not an end in and of itself. A common objection to this line of thought is, but Paul said that bodily exercise profiteth little. Here's the full verse. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Okay, so first... This idea is perfectly in keeping with what Paul said to the Corinthian church. There's no discrepancy here. Although Paul commends the discipline of the Greco-Roman athlete by using it as an example, he criticizes their goal. He criticizes the purpose of it. He says they are striving for a corruptible crown. So even awards more durable than olive wreaths, like Golden World Series trophies, will be meaningless in eternity. The athlete has the prize as the goal. But for some, the prize is the glorification of the body itself. That's gymnasium culture. So you have Olympian culture, corruptible crown, and then you have gymnasium culture, which is the body is the goal. The goal is to be able to go into the gymnasium, gymnos, nude, not wearing any clothes, and look like the man. Literally the same exact phenomena that we have today. So our culture is obsessed with body image. Gym culture and social media have together kind of created this Problem, in our generation, views the body not as a means. Guys aren't trying to get stronger so they can be more efficient on their construction job. Like, so they can carry more, more like, you know, two by fours. That's not the purpose of why they're in the gym. They don't need to get stronger to do that. So what's the purpose? The purpose is to get ripped. Okay, why? To get ripped. Like, that's, that's the purpose. The purpose is the thing. The thing is the purpose. Or more specifically, so people can know that I'm ripped and glorify your rippedness, and then maybe you'd be able to monetize that on social media. That's essentially the point. The body becomes the goal itself. That's why it's called body building. You build the body, and then for some reason, you stand in front of judges. So weird. Like, that's just, it's really bizarre when you think about it. This person lifts weights, all this kind of stuff, and some guy stands before other guys and goes, Ooh! and guys go, very nice, very nice. No, this is weird. I am not involving myself in this at all. All right, so this is not a Christian view of health and fitness. The Christian view would be that the body is a means to an end. What end? The glorification, not of my body, but of God. 
That's the goal. I should deny my body anything that inhibits my ability to glorify God, and I should, I should subjugate my body to slavery in areas where it is petulant in order to limit my physical and spiritual liabilities. What Paul is saying when he says bodily exercise profiteth little, he compares physical exercise to godliness. Okay, when we compare those two, there is no comparison. Godliness, he says, is profitable unto all things. So here's the way to understand that. The scope of the effect of my physical fitness is not nearly as large as the scope of the effect of my godliness. You are not impacted as much by my physical condition as you are by my spiritual condition because our relationship is mediated by the spirit, by definition, right? So yes, you are impacted. If I have a heart attack right now because, you know, I'm unhealthy, that's going to affect you in some way. But what affects you more is my godliness or lack thereof. So if I have to choose between physical health and godliness, by all means, I have to choose godliness, but that's not the choice that I'm making. It's not mutually exclusive. The one influences the other and vice versa. And Paul wanted Timothy, by the way, who was a man plagued with physical maladies, he warned him that the impact of his godliness far exceeded the impact of his health. He's helping to encourage a young man who's struggling in his health. Timothy was struggling to keep up health-wise, and Paul is saying, listen, bodily exercise is important. Do what you should, okay? But here's what's more important. Make sure you stay godly. God can strengthen you. Do what you can. Take responsibility. But what's going to impact Ephesus for you, Timothy, what's going to impact that is your godliness. Okay? I know that you've got a stomach issue. All right, he says, drink a little wine for thy stomach's sake. That's to Timothy. But make sure you take care of your godliness. Number three and lastly, a failure to prioritize physical discipline puts my reward at risk. A failure to prioritize physical discipline puts my reward in heaven at risk. Paul said the primary reason he was so disciplined in relation to physical things, and that includes moral choices, was because he was concerned, quote, lest by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. That word castaway means that which does not prove itself. He's most likely continuing the Olympic analogy of the person who didn't finish their race. And so don't, they don't get to take part in the final ceremony. They're not standing on the pedestal. They did not finish. But if we fast forward to the end of Paul's life, we find he could joyfully say this to Timothy. He says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. So we preach moderation and discipline and sanctification to fellow Christians, but unless we keep under our own body and bring it into subjection, here's the thing. It is likely that my flesh will put up a fight that I struggle to win. And in some cases, that could lead people to fail to finish their course, not just for spiritual issues, but for physical ones. By the way, your physical condition impacts your moral choices. 100%. Read the book by Duhegg called willpower or the, the power of habit or something like that. <clears throat> Duhigg is his last name. Talks about the fact that, I mean, if you are undisciplined in your, in your choices, specifically nutritionally, physically, you will have far less resources of willpower to exercise in your life than someone else. And that will affect your morality. How could it not? How could it not? 
So they couldn't, this type of person can't endure hardness as a good soldier, as it were. So how can I glorify Jesus if I've preached perseverance to others, but fail in the day of adversity because my strength is small? And it could be that God had plans for me, designs laid out for me in his eternal counsel, and they go unfulfilled in me, maybe not even because of a moral issue, but because of a failure to keep under my body. In some cases, I will fail to do God's will, not because I am not qualified to do so, but because I am not strong enough to do so. Like John Mark, when the trail gets rugged and jagged and mountainous, I will realize how weak I am and turn around and go home. We must keep under our bodies. Paul went through an endless litany of difficulty, but he subdued it and brought it into subjection to limit its ability to hold him back. The goal is not to be Mr. Atlas, The body is not the end. The body is only the means that I have to carry out God's will. And my stewardship of this body, in part, determines my level of effectiveness. So I must keep under my body. Hey guys, thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, make sure to rate, share, and most importantly, follow the podcast. When you hit the follow button, you'll get new episodes sent directly to your phone every Tuesday. See you in the next episode. God bless.